Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. That's the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 902. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all and share the word of God with you. As we begin, let's start with a prayer. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, Last week, we were able to go over what Paul was trying to teach the Corinthians concerning the Holy Spirit, how they completely missed the mark, and, you know, the truth about who the Spirit is. I'll stay on this subject and passage for one more week after this, but it's because I, I really believe that this may be one of the most confused and misunderstood concepts or aspects of the church. Um, we see it's not only our problem for today, but the church's problem in Corinth 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago. And so when we come across errors and heresies of today, just a little research, a little background shows us that it's really nothing new. Old heresies become new heresies just just a little differently. The way we can equip ourselves then from falling for such schemes is by adhering to the Word of God. And even when we do study the Scriptures, I will say that we will come to some passages that are a little mysterious, some mysterious elements. And it may be because of, you know, one, it may be because we simply just don't know enough Scripture to understand it fully. Our biblical theology is off. Or it could be, too, God intends it to remain a mystery. For instance, or for example, the Trinity. Uh, It's a mystery. It doesn't mean that we don't know anything about the Trinity, it just means we don't know as exhaustively as we'd like because we know how we have a uh, limitation to our finite understanding of things. However, whatever anything falls under, either one or two that I mentioned before, we know that from the scriptures, what is clear? This is what we want to preach on, what we want to hold on to. We know in the scriptures what is clear, and what is clear is what we teach and proclaim. I think it's the same concerning this topic, 
the gifts of the Spirit. What's clear, we teach. And if it's not so clear, we're, we're going to try to put it out there. Maybe there are some things that aren't clear. A bunch of you had some questions, too, in your smaller groups. And hopefully we get to address some of those questions. But I would like to quickly add on to what I just said is that what is clear is pretty vast. It's a lot. It's not as mysterious as maybe, maybe some of us think. And I may be taking three weeks to address just this passage, but the three weeks are addressing just the basic facts or the basics of gifts. I've seen other pastors take this one particular passage and go for about seven weeks. So take that for what it's worth. And so for this week and the next, I'd like to go over some basic foundational understandings of what gifts are. And to understand that, we need to make sure we don't get the Holy Spirit wrong. It's because we get the gifts wrong, we get the givers wrong, we get the giver wrong, we get the gifts wrong. I'll be weaving in from what we talked about last week and what we'll talk about the next. And next week, hopefully, you'll see that we'll be going back to the previous two sermons as well. But if you look at this passage, the major subject or the major theme of this passage isn't the gifts, but the giver. And I want us to remember that as we go through this. To focus on the gift without thought to the giver would be to eat the rice pudding that my mom made while ignoring her. You know, she gives me the rice pudding. I'm like, get out of here, mom. I'm trying to eat my rice pudding. And then you might be mad that I would do something like that. And I didn't, so don't worry. But it's, it's natural, right? How can you do that? Because even in my eating, wouldn't I want to honor her? Then even in my usage of gifts, then, I would want to honor the giver. If I could, I would say this over and over and over again because we've lost it to such a degree, such a great degree, that one prominent so-called teacher would call God and the Holy Spirit her genie like Aladdin. This is not Christian. It was so smug, so self aggrandizing, and it's sad that so many churches fall for this kind of heretical nonsense, and that's exactly what it is. It's heresy. It's not Christian. God is not a genie. He's not like a genie. He doesn't say that our wish, wish is his command. He is the sovereign God of the universe. We are under his command. And to the Christian, this is the most freeing and satisfying understanding. When we see God's commands and laws and we find that these things reflect the character of God, we see that it's so beautiful. We don't see the Bible as like, ah, oh, so much Bible, I hate this guy, right? We don't see it that way. We see it's really beautiful because it reflects God. And we see God as truly beautiful. But we also see how far we fall short of his holy standards. But then we also see how through his son and the love that he showed us through his son, we find ourselves justified 
And now by the Holy Spirit, we become more and more like Jesus. We become sanctified. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you read a few verses down from Ephesians 5, 1, it goes in 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for, they, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, before I go any further, I'd like to address a few questions that some of you had in your smaller groups. I received many, and I think that for the most part, they'll be answered in the coming weeks and months of going through this letter. However, a few questions were on the notion of being burned out or burnout. And if I could clarify some of the meaning behind what I said when I said uh, that I think that it is a quote from last week, a made-up and unbiblical word. I said burnout is a made-up and unbiblical word. Now, that's, that's heavy stuff, especially if you grew up in the church where burnout may have been used every other week by some leaders that you know. Can you get to a place of emotional, physical, social, spiritual exhaustion where you are utterly depleted and just want to die? The answer is yes. The answer is absolutely. You see instances of this in the Bible. You look at Job. Look at Jonah. Look at Elijah. Look at David. And etc. Look at Jesus. However, however, what is different is where these men turn to in their exhaustion versus what we think that we need when we are quote-unquote burned out. Oh, I'm burned out, I'm burned out. I can't do this anymore. And I've addressed some of this in uh, some passages and sermons before about busyness, right? Busyness, where we, ban uh, where we jam-pack our schedules with work, study, play, because they're all so important. I don't find any, in, any coincidence that um, a recent Facebook post that I saw, I log on to Facebook once every, I think, 17 months or something like that, but one of the top ones that I saw on my feed was this person saying, the weekend is not enough because five days, you know, I have to work and the weekend is all I have for shopping, resting, playing, and all that. And I've addressed a little bit about that. We're so busy, we get burned out. And so when it comes to sitting at the feet of Jesus, sitting right here, reading and listening to his word, studying in fellowship with believers, praying the prayers, breaking the bread, no time, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. And this is what Jesus said to Martha when she was scrambling to get her hosting duties completed. 
And mind you, this was a big thing in the Eastern culture, right? Uh, when I was growing up, I had friends from different cultures. I had one friend. Uh, whenever I went over his house, I was offered nothing. We would just play with you know, toys or play in the backyard. Every once in a blue moon, his mom would ask me if I would like a grilled cheese. And I didn't know what that was. And this is like way back in elementary, kindergarten, first grade. And I was like, what is a grilled cheese? I was like, oh, it's one day I said, okay, sure, I'll take a grilled cheese. And it was literally just two pieces of white bread and American cheese. I was like, what is this? Is this a joke? So I, I, this is when I first was introduced to grilled cheese. Now I love it. It's like grilled cheese is amazing. White bread and like yellow cheese, who would have thought? Anyway, and so every once in a while she, I would get this offer. It was completely different when I went to another friend's house. And you may be familiar with this. Soon as I go in, I'm offered food. And I say, no, thank you. I'm not hungry. It's like 3 p.m. But I was offered food again. And if I say no again, eventually as we're just hanging around or playing, there's a whole fruit platter comes in out of nowhere. And there's like, where'd you get this like variety of fruit? Do they always have it in store somehow? Like when someone just pops in, you have like 16 different fruit and some crackers. And so I was exposed to different kinds of cultures growing up, which I'm very thankful for. But in this culture, it was big. Hospitality is big. You can't just Give someone grilled cheese. That would have been a huge disrespect. You had to put out the platters, right? And so Martha's running around saying, Jesus is over our house. I got to do this. But the Bible shows us that Mary chose the better. And this is what Luke says. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Notice how Luke narrates this. It's not like Martha was busy or Martha was really, really, had a really tight schedule. The word used is Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and this is Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And it seems that from this passage that the busyness of Martha was written as a distraction. And while serving isn't bad, serving is good. It's good. Anything, we'll see that anything, even a good thing, can be turned into a bad thing. Why? Because only one thing is necessary. When we get anxious and troubled, leading to what we think is burnout. And Jesus is teaching Martha out of his love for her. Out of his love for her, he's teaching her this. Isn't it because we have taken the one thing that is necessary and put it under then these other things? What's necessary? Jesus goes, one thing. And all these things are then in subjection to that one thing. 
You know, if you really want to learn about rest, you're welcome to listen to our most recent podcast on the Sabbath. Uh, Sam named it the Eternal Father's Day, which you might have thought and looked at the title be like, mm, that's a weird one and skipped it, but I assure you it's about the Sabbath, okay? So his wit, that was his wit. But uh, it's about the Sabbath. And it's about resting. How do you truly rest, right? And the Bible shows us. You know, we have in our church, we have mandatory Sabbaths, I mean, periods of rest for our officers to rest one year out of seven precisely because of this reason, to make sure that we are not making the service that will distract us from the good portion. And there is the rub. We get gifts wrong because that we think that gifts are the good portion. It's the creme de la creme of the Christian life. But that's not true. The good portion is Christ. Good gifts always point to the good giver. We're so worried about the gifts when we have the giver. Don't you know that we have these gifts according to his grace, as it says in Romans 12.6? Gifts are given then to edify the body. So the task then is to edify. It's to build up. And gifts are given so that we can complete the task. You know, when the body functions as it should, the fullness of what God intends for the church to display is shown. When the body functions as it should, the fullness of what God intends for the church to display is shown. You know, we marvel when we see great feats of athleticism. And I don't think many of us here would argue that the best athletes in the world could probably compete in many different competitive sports and many physical competitions. Uh, there is one person in particular that comes to mind for me. His name is Bo Jackson. Yeah, you didn't expect that one. But his name is Bo Jackson. He is the only person to have ever won all-star titles in both Major League Baseball and the NFL. And growing up, if you follow his story, Growing up, he would win almost every event in the decathlon. The decathlon is an incredible uh, you know, physical feat just to win, to win it. But he would go on to win almost every event, event there. He would go on to win multiple state championships in different sports, including the Heisman Trophy. And at the NFL draft, if you grew up in the 80s, you saw that without warming up, he ran the 40-yard dash in uh, 4.12 seconds. It shattered the previous uh, record, not by a hundredth of a second. It shattered the previous record by a tenth of a second. He, he went on to become the highest-paid non-quarterback in the NFL. And while he was playing baseball, at the same time, he would smash home runs that would go past 500 feet. He would do these feats where he would catch a ball from center field and throw the runner that was going to home plate out. And so you would see all these feats happening as you're watching this man, unfortunately, uh, to what many have thought would be leading up to the prime of his career. He was just getting better and better. 
uh, he dislocated his hip in a football game. And to stay in that game, he decided to pop it back in. But when he popped it in, he popped it in wrong, and it caused long-term damage to the blood vessels in his hip, and his bone tissue died as a result. And so he couldn't play football, and eventually he couldn't play baseball anymore either. But everyone wanted to see Bo play, because Bo knows how to play. And when the body of Christ as well functions as it should, we see the fullness of what God intends for the church to display. And when we don't, it looks more like quap. Uh, QWOP. It looks more like that. And when the body functions, it's okay. It, you can look up quap later. Man, what a waste of life when you start playing. It, it's, a, it's a game. It's a HTML game that you can play in your browser and you take QW and OP, move the thighs and legs of this runner, and you try to go 100 yards or meters or whatever, and then you find eight hours have passed and your sermon needs to... No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. Um, but when the body functions as it should, you'll never know. Uh, we truly see a healthy church body. We see growth. We see servant leaders rise up. We see what changes from self-orientation to other orientation. These are not people that will come up that are simply professionals, and they may be, but they may not be. But what is primary is that they have the gifts that they are using to serve the church. Our witness then becomes powerful. It can lead to persecution, but it most definitely leads to people being added. The love that we have for one another is evident, and it's something that the world cannot mimic. And we see a lot of the opposite in some places now, where these race hustlers promote bitterness while getting rich off of those that they stoke and incite. Everyone is just angry and or scared. Hope is being sucked out. And is it any wonder why when the answer has been given to us, but we refuse to follow God and decide to follow secular mechanisms like Marxism or critical race theory, that we find this instead, what we see in the world. But the scriptures tell us this, that the righteous will live by faith. And the direction that he gives us in his word, if you want to know the direction of your life, pray to God and pour over his word. This seemingly simple instruction provides vast riches to the believer. And through his Holy Spirit, we are given understanding of his will and strength to obey his commands. But the Holy Spirit is thought of more like a tool that we can manipulate. And this is folly. This is why these charismatic leaders have been able to manipulate their followers. You think that you can manipulate the Holy Spirit, that he is a genie, you are being manipulated. More and more we see these prominent leaders fall by the wayside. They will not be able to finish the race, nor will their followers. You may have heard things like fire baptism is something to seek. And I assure you that it is not. Baptism by fire is mentioned in the Bible 
and it's mentioned by John the Baptist. I'm going to go through a lot of Bible verses today. So we're going to do some biblical theology here. You can follow along if you want. But I will say this, and I'll give you the address so that you can listen on and take notes as well later on. In Matthew chapter 3, this is the fire of baptism, okay? This is what people always refer to when they go, you need to be baptized by fire, okay? This is what John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. In verse 11, Matthew chapter 3, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's where a lot of people are getting fire baptism, okay? So he says that Jesus is coming. He's not even worthy to carry his sandals. And Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's that mean? What does that mean? Never heard it before. Never heard it before, seriously. What does that mean? So what would the Christian do? Read the next verse. Just read the next verse. Read verse 12, right? And this is what John continues to say. Remember, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, reach verse 12 then. His winnowing fork in his hand. So Jesus has a winnowing fork. That means winnowing is something that splits, separates, divides, right? His winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the fire. That's the fire everybody wants. That's the fire that you're singing. Oh, I want fire to come down. Are you serious? Read verse 12. What do you think fire is? It's to burn. And it's the burning with an unquenchable fire. So this is not just juxtaposed. It's contrasted. Fire is contrasted with the Holy Spirit. One to save and one for judgment. But Jesus commands both is the point. He holds the winnowing fork. He can do both, and it's in his authority. So the Holy Spirit gathers, and the fire burns. I would not sing songs about waves crashing over me, nor would I ask God to have fire fall down on me either. This is to speak Bible words without understanding the sentences, without context to the words you have no idea what it really means. Bible words without Bible doctrine. Every time, every time fire fell down in the Bible, it was judgment. Fire falling down is recorded in the Bible at least six times. Fire fell down from heaven and it destroyed Job's flocks in Job 1.16. Fire fell in the form of burning sulfur, rain from the heavens, and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19.24. God also used fire from heaven to judge the soldiers that the wicked king Ahaziah to arrest, that the wicked king sent uh, to arrest Elijah twice. Fire descended from heaven to consume a group of 50 soldiers sent on the king's business. This is in 2 Kings chapter 1. And on at least three occasions, God sent fire from above to consume a sacrifice. So you may think that's different, but 
here. Fire came down from heaven to consume the sacrifice that David offered on the threshing floor in 1 Chronicles 21, 26, to consume the sacrifice at the dedication of the temple in the presence of King Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7, 1, and to consume Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel in response to Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 18, 38. So in these latter cases, it was to burn up the sacrifice. What does that mean? We know what it means. It means judgment that the people deserved was put on the sacrifice. That's what the sacrifice was. When we say Jesus came to us as a sacrifice, that means he took the judgment that we deserved. And that's what fire is. It's judgment come down. The idea that spiritual giftings fall down and the Spirit of God falling down that was made popular in the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s. It started when what we now know is very popularly known as the Pentecostal movement has spread in and out of almost every single major denomination, big and small, and around the world. This Pentecostal movement, while it has variations, right, it's not all exactly the same, but it gives the basic teaching that it is normative to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit after your regeneration. That's what the Pentecostal movement really believes. It's normative to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit after your regeneration. That means you can get baptized with the Holy Spirit after you have faith to believe in Jesus Christ. There is a time gap between the regeneration and baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's commonplace doctrine now. But the question is, is it biblical? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit has to do, as, as we're learning here, the Holy Spirit's empowering the church for ministry. It's because we are empowered with the Holy Spirit, we can be witnesses to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit isn't a genie, but is the paraclete. He is the helper. He is the counselor. He is the one who is called alongside us. Para with cleat alongside us, called, right? And you may have even heard the Holy Spirit called the comforter. Uh, that's actually from the KJV, the King James Version. But in Old English, comforter meant something slightly different than something that you put on when you're a little cold on your couch, right? Uh, it means comfort, which came from two words. Number one, cum, like in summa cum laude, which you would understand summa meaning the highest or the summation, and cum with, laude, which we, which we get lauds, right? He was lauded, he was praised, right? Summa cum laude, the highest with praise, right? It comes with the word cum, that's come, and fort, which comes from the word forte, which means strength. So comfort in the Old English meant with strength. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for power and strength. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Speaking of burned out, Moses was burned out. He was depleted, right? Everyone is complaining. 
people are weeping. You know why? Because they only had manna to eat. You know, it may have been great at first, like, whoa, there's food coming down from heaven. It's like on the grass. I can just pick it up. Uh, it tastes like sweet uh, bread, something like that, right? But people got bored. You know, some people can't eat the same type of food two nights in a row. You know, you had Italian one day, so the next day you have to pick something else like Greek food. And even, I've heard even some people like Greek food's too close to Italian. They're like right next to each other. So I need something else, right? And people back then would gather the manna, and so this is what they would do. That's all they had to eat. So they would gather the manna, they would either grind it, they would beat it, they would boil it, they would bake it, they would make cakes with it. How many things can you do with manna before you run out of ideas, right? And people wouldn't just complain. It got to a point where Moses could hear the people weeping in the camps because of manna. So he goes to God, and he says to God, please kill me now. That's what he says. Kill me now. I can't do this. And so did God tell Moses then, you know, you burned out. Uh, I need you to go on a nice little vacation. Go to the tropical islands. Did he go, oh, you poor thing. Why don't you go fishing for a while and then come back a little later after you're refreshed, bro? He, did he say that? And he, did he say, don't worry, I'll take care of things while you're gone? This is what God tells Moses. Moses goes, kill me now. I can't take this. And God says, gather the 70 elders. Gather 70 men. In Numbers 11, verse 24, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him, meaning Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. That little part is also important. We'll get back to that. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. Anyway, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. That's like the best names. If you have two sons, Okay, so it continues. In verse 28, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. Stop them from what? Stop them from prophesying, right? This is something only you do, Moses. (laughs) Moses, you have the Spirit of God. You only prophesy. This is how Moses responded to Joshua. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Moses, his desire would actually turn out to be a prophecy in Joel. This is his desire. Would that the Lord put his spirit on all of the people, on everybody. I wish that all the people of God would have his spirit. And it would turn out to be a prophecy in Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my flesh, um, pour out my spirit, On all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What are those days? This is cited 
in Peter's sermon on Pentecost, when the Spirit of God fell upon the Jewish believers in a manner that looked like tongues of fire. Luke is very, very careful to write it had the appearance of tongues of fire. They weren't tongues of fire, but they had the appearance of tongues of fire. I'm going to read that passage for you in Luke, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were some dwelling, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they started to even think that they were drunk, right? This is when Peter expounds Joel 2. He goes, I assure you, it's only 9 a.m. We are not drunk. That's impossible, right? And he expounds Joel 2. Because this, this event that's happening right now is the prophetic fulfillment of Joel 2 that Moses was able to foresee as well that all believers would receive the Holy Spirit. However, the Pentecostal church and its movement took this to mean to show that all believers believed first and then the baptism of the Holy Spirit came. That's what, that's what they say. We're going to get to that. In Acts 1.8, Jesus talks about four places, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the end of the earth, the ends of the earth, right? That means there were basically four people groups that we also see in Acts. And it's shown in this verse but it's actually shown throughout the book. You know, if you go to uh, a play, you know, they have this, um, like, a prelude in the beginning. It holds, like, the musical notes and the pieces from the, the rest of the play. And then you got to hear that. That's, that's what Acts 1-8 is. It's showing us what's going to happen in the rest of the book. You see four places, four people groups, okay? So the Jerusalem, the Jews, we saw that. And then there, were, there was Judea, the God-fears. These are people that's also called the Hellenistic Jews. They submitted to the Torah, they believed in God, but they did not want to get circumcised, and they didn't get circumcised. And then there was Samaria, the Samaritans. They were hated by the Jews because they were a mixed breed of Jewish people and Gentiles, and then they made up their own religion. They had another mountain that they worshipped on. So it was a hybrid of Jewish and Gentile customs. And finally, the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. So we see four people groups, right? The Jews, the God-fearers, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. And so we also see the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the Jews when? In chapter 2. In chapter 2, we saw those gathering of the Jews, the people that saw it were Jewish people, the diaspora that came together. These were Jewish people that saw the baptism and experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You jump to chapter 8 of Acts. In Acts 8.14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, Jews at Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
The Samaritans also received the Holy Spirit. It's almost like a mini Pentecost. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit until when? Until the apostles laid their hands on this group of believers. And everyone, everyone got the Holy Spirit, okay? You jump up two more chapters after. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, that there was, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Who is that? That's a God-fearer right there. That's a Hellenistic Jew, if anything. And if you go down from Acts chapter 10 to verse 44, it says, While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For, there, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked them to remain for some days. The Holy Spirit falls upon the God-fearers in Caesarea, and where is that? That's in Judea. That's exactly in Judea. Remember, we saw what Jesus said. This is about Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit will have you go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and this happened, and then to the ends of the earth. Where's the ends of the earth? If you go all the way down uh, to <clears throat> Acts chapter 19. 19, it happened when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through an inland country and came to Ephesus. He found there some disciples, and he said to them, Did you see the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism, the water baptism, right? And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. If you look at every instance of this happening, what is the point of Pentecost? What's the point of Pentecost? You can't lose this. If you lose this, you're losing the whole point of Pentecost. What's the point of Pentecost? It's not just that some people. That's not the point of Pentecost. It's not that some people. And we're seeing this being played out and being taught in some churches. It, the point is not that some people, but all God's people were endowed with the Holy Spirit and that means all God's people are empowered for the ministry. To say that Pentecost happened only as the Pentecostals would believe then would be too low of a view of Pentecost. Pentecost shows us that every believer is endowed by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, by His power, gives according to His grace the empowering for the ministry. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the Corinthians got that wrong. They used the gifts or whatever seemed to be gift-like for their own puffing up, for their own gain. That's not the purpose of gifts. The Spirit is in every believer. We'll see this when Pastor Paul goes over 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 14. He is in every believer baptizing us into one body that is Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, we have become one body. This is something 
that no race relations will ever, ever be able to accomplish. It's through the Holy Spirit we become one body. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 to 22, it says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, may, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And like the Corinthians, if you had this wrong, it might take three chapters to get you out of this as well, maybe even more, because we know that they didn't get out of it. Paul had to write another letter addressing this issue. And then Clement of Rome, the bishop, Clement of Rome, wrote another letter to the Corinthians telling them to go back to Paul's letter. Please listen to the first two letters of Paul. Because after seeing the details of the Pentecost, we can clearly see the differences between what happened at Pentecost and what was going on in Corinth. And one major detail that we'll see is that while in the Pentecost there was harmony, there was in Corinth major disorder. People were confusing and mixing gifts with secular thought, and it was turning into chaos. It was no longer helping, but hurting. In the passage that we read in verse 7 to 10, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good that was not being done. And then Paul starts to explain something, which I'm going to get into just a little bit this morning. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Paul here writes in such a fantastic way, and it's for us to see that he is challenging through this, just this statement, this kind of moshing of gifts put together. And these are specific. Remember I told you that every single place in the Bible that talks about gifts is a different list. The only, the only gift that is repeated in these uh, gift listings is the, the prophecy. And prophecy we'll get to next week as well. What that means. What that means to proclaim. Right? And so Paul is writing something that is challenging the ideology that the Corinthian church had started to accept. There are some nuances here I do not want us to miss. There is a, a repeated word that comes out here a lot, right? And that's the words, and to another, and to another, and to another, and to another, and to another. 
But if you look at the Greek, it's not always the same Greek word. The translation is right. The, the translation is and to another. But it's from a different Greek word. And that Greek word means a slightly something different. The two words used here is alos and heteros, right? Alos and heteros. While they both mean and to another, one means and to another of the same kind, and the other means and to another of a different kind, okay? Alos is used when Jesus says, when someone strikes you on the right cheek, change, uh, uh, change to the other, right? Show the other. That's alos. So you switch to the other cheek, which means they're in the same camp of cheeks, right? It's the same face. Heteros is used when it's another but of a different kind, like when the disciples ask, are you the one, are you the Messiah, or shall we look for heteros, another kind, another person? So let me read for you what I just read using alos and heteros. And if you're paying attention, you'll get this. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and alos, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. Heteros, faith by the same Spirit. Alos, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Alos, the working of miracle, miracles. To alos, prophecy. Alos, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Alos, the working of miracles. Alos, prophecy. Alos, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Heteros, various kinds of tongues. Alos, the interpretation of tongues. This is amazing because ecstatic speaker, prophet, teacher was the priorities that we talked about. This is what the Corinthian church did. Number one, highest on the list is the ecstatic speaker, the guy that can't speak intelligibly. It must have been some kind of divine mania, right? And then the prophet, and then the teachers all the way on the bottom. You see here, Paul is resetting priorities, showing what they had was indeed backwards. The world had prioritized something, and Paul was flipping it around. If you look at it, it's, every time heteros is mentioned, it's a different set of giftings. It's a, a different person. Look, for one, given, to the, given through the spirit of the other utterance of wisdom, the same kind of utterance of knowledge. Who is that? That's the teacher. Heteros, now we're talking about somebody else, faith by the same spirit, Allah's gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits, the working of miracles, and prophecy, spirits, right. And then so that is the prophet. And then finally, it's another heteros, various kinds of tongues, Allah's interpretation of tongues. I think I read that verse twice. My bad. Um, but here's the thing. Paul is flipping around this priority that they had. They're like, oh my goodness, you speak in tongue. That's a huge thing. He puts it all the way at the end. And he puts the teacher's gifts all the way up on top. The prophetic gifts all the, in the middle. And so he's flipping this around. This is a nuance that we should not miss because this is something he's going to go on to in the next three chapters as well. In fact, the tongue part is only four words in the Greek. It's a brief statement, almost like an afterthought, which he immediately places the word interpretation in the same grouping as various kinds of tongues. And by placing interpretation in the same grouping, he is forcing that the unintelligible cannot stay unintelligible, that it has to be intelligible. If you just read this, same thing with the whole prelude kind of thing that we talked about. Every gift has a purpose. Even if it ceases, like we saw with Moses' 70 elders, every gift 
had and has a purpose. That's the point. People in Moses' day stopped prophesying after they initially got the Spirit. It ceased, right? But the gift had a purpose. Every gift has a purpose because the giver has a will for those gifts for the good of the gathered church, Simpharon, that we talked about. We'll get to the specific gifts next week, but the whole point is it's not as important as the giver. Some of you are like, well, I really want to know what my gifts are, as if that was the focal point of these messages. And I want to keep on saying again and again and again, the focal point isn't the gifts. The focal point is the giver. If you are in the giver, then when the time is allotted to you, you will have the gifts to complete the task that is ahead of you. That means you will receive power so that you can go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see in Acts. Exactly when they needed the Holy Spirit, they needed strength, God supplied them with the gifts. Was it always there? No. The answer is no. It wasn't always there. But it was there when it was needed. That's the point. That's the point. This should be the backdrop and the setup that we want to hold on to as we go on to next week and we go on to some acknowledgments of what's a sign gift, what's a temporary sign gift, and what, what's an edifying gift that's permanent in the church, even um, you know, manifesting today and that kind of uh, you know, discussion that we'll see that Paul is having with the Corinthians, the teaching that Paul was having. But that being said, is what we don't ever want to lose. So if someone goes, I'm a little confused, what about the gifts? The whole point is, what you see me trying to do is I'm just going to keep on pushing you back. It's about the giver. Who's beautiful? It's not the fact that you have these gifts. It's not the magical things that sprinkle out, out of your fingertips. It really is the fact that you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. You have the giver. That's amazing. I would trade every single rice pudding in my life if it meant that I, would, I might lose my mom instead of it. That's not even a discussion for me. That's not even a thought that comes to my mind. And yet, some of us are struggling with, well, Holy Spirit, that's, it's all good. What about the gifts, though? And I'm saying, you're missing the point. And to correct this, we're going to have to hit it again and again and again because some of us have been so focused on the gifts, we have neglected the giver. We've only given lip service, no relationship, no pouring ourselves into the Word, in prayer, receiving the Holy Spirit's guidance, but it's like, where are the sprinkles out of the fingertips now? That's what I'm really waiting for. That's not the point. The point is there is a giver. He is good, magnificent, beautiful, and he is the paraclete. He is, he is sent to be always with you. That means he will empower you for every single circumstance you will ever go through. Then why is there no hope? You will always have hope. Why is there fear of what's happening in the world? You will always be encouraged. You have the paraclete. You have God by your side who is going to empower you for every single task that's ahead of you. That's hope. That's something that we can hold on to. That's encouraging. That's truly a reason to worship God and give him thanks for. And so we praise God for giving us his Holy Spirit, empowering us 
so that we can finish the work and the task ahead of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for teaching us in your word what it means to sit at your feet, to know what is primary, to know what is the one good thing. And as we continue to live out this life at the feet of Jesus as our priority, as our primary, oh God, I pray that you would guide us, lead us, fill us, empower us as we hold on to you. May our faith continue to increase. And I pray that we would be a beautiful church, a body that is magnificent in running the race for your glory. Let's take this time to pray. And let's ask God to continue to teach us that we can remain humble as he continues to exhort us in the word that we may be able to understand what God wants us to understand about him, about his Holy Spirit, about what he wants us to do as his church, exhorting one another in love, empowered so that we can serve one another for the common good of the gathered people. Let's pray.